everyone, Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. Justin, Pearl, and I recently spoke with Randy Dybel, who's a doctoral student in philosophy at the New School for Social Research. His work focuses on phenomenology and ancient Greek philosophy, and uh, Randy's uh, perhaps the the preeminent English-speaking scholar working with uh, German phenomenologist Konrad Martius, who is a 20th century realist concerned with the ontological constitution of reality and consciousness. She's someone I've never heard of before, which is really that surprising. Uh, phenomenology isn't really where I hang out most of the time, uh, let alone the, the history of phenomenology. Um, but she seems like a, an interesting figure in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, certainly happy to explore some new territory. We're going to be talking to Randy again pretty soon, I believe, uh, about John Spencer Brown, the laws of form and related matters. So keep a lookout for that. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. Feel free to stop by and leave us a message and we'll, uh, we'll respond to that in an upcoming episode. All right, here is Randy Dival. Peace. Uh, Randy Dival, it is uh, great to have you on today. Oh my God, thank you. Wow. Yeah, this is totally a pleasure. I love the show, by the way. I'm one of your fans. Um, I think in one of the recent shows, you said there were four. So now it's five. Definitely. I mean, no. Oh, five. We're up to five fans. This is this is tremendous. <laughs> I, I know. Air, I don't want to make you air horn, air horn uh, effect right here. And, and I will say that technically this is your, your second appearance on the podcast, right? Because... In oh. our episode on uh, wait, which episode was it? yes on the Theosophy episode we had one of your questions was read out. Yeah, I had a, a little cameo. Actually, I was listening to that yesterday in the car, uh, driving one of my kids back from ballet, and and <laughs> uh, Matt, you said um, I, uh, Randy uh, Dibble, I think, and and then I said Dibble, and at the same moment, Justin said. <laughs> Dible. And I wasn't sure if I was live at that moment. <laughs> Me and my daughter were tripping out for a second there. So we have invited you out uh, to talk about somebody that you are, in many ways, I think one of the, the sort of premier experts, at least in the English language world on, uh, which is uh, Hedvig Conrad Martius. Um, and so I'm really excited. I This is a name that I think sort of floats through the ether and the kind of circles that I run with. Um, so our audience might not know. I'm tra- uh, trained originally as a phenomenologist. Phenomenology is a really remarkable uh, field of study. First of all, a method in philosophy. It's one of my favorite questions to be asked. And I think every time I give a different answer, and that just shows uh, the breadth and possibilities involved in its method. Uh, so phenomenology, as the word suggests, is you could call the science of phenomena. And in, in that respect, the science of science, the science of human experience, and ultimately the science of meanings and signification. So, for instance, I have these coffee mugs uh, in my hands, and I drank out of this one this morning some good uh, triple berry tea. 
uh, at a good friend's home. And this one also has great meaning. Um, looking at these mugs from an objective perspective, maybe from a natural science perspective, we could dissect them, look at their chemical and molecular composition, look at their practical use, holding uh, contents of beverage uh, to, from which to drink and so forth. Um, but phenomenology opens the aperture of discovery, discovery much wider. And, and so she kind of floats, but always on the margins of those conversations. And I think you've been part, uh, you know, together with, with certain groups like the Society for Phenomenology and uh, Religious Studies at really bringing her uh, to the fore of this conversation. Um, so, you know, on our show, we like to start a little bit personal. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your academic trajectory and how you ended up um, getting involved with, with her work and kind of promoting her work in an English, uh, in, to English-speaking phenomenologists. Yeah, cool. Right. So, um, so before I came into academia, I was, um, well, I guess, I guess uh, you know, so I'm from California and I'm, I'm been out in New York for a long time. But um, yeah, but originally I'm from San Diego and there's like a, a psychedelic underbelly there. You know, there's like bonfires at the beach and there are like head shops and I would they had books, you know. And I, so I got into Terrence McKenna. I, I really enjoyed your Terrence McKenna episodes, um, your theosophy episodes, you know, and um, and that's how I got into Alfred North Whitehead was through M McKenna, in fact. And then um, so I, I got into that. Um, and then I, I discovered um, John C. Lilly, the float tank, you know, inventor, the the character um, in Altered States, played by William Hurt, you know, and um, so I got re really into his work. And then I, I contacted George Spencer Brown, um, whose book Laws of Form John Lilly used in the isolation tank to travel into other universes. And I know we'll talk about this later, but um, it was like a, a really transformative moment for me when I when I got into this, because his idea of what's called the first distinction became a real Cartesian moment for me. Everything that, that became the center of it all. So that was about 2001. I contacted Spencer Brown. We became friends. This is before I went into school for philosophy. And then, and then I did, I went, you know, we, we maintained a friendship. Um, and then I went into school for philosophy and eventually I, I landed out here in New York. I went to Stony Brook working with uh, Ed Casey and, and a number of other um, philosophers like, like Peter Manchester, um, when Peter Manchester passed away in 2015, um, I memorialized him by getting into his work, The Syntax of Time, at one of Ed Casey's seminars. And it, it absorbed me. I got, I got really into it. And, and Peter talks about this thing called the, the ancient spherics and, and the whole Pythagorean harmony of the spheres tradition. Um, you know, not just in philosophy, but in hermeticism and 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 in, in other traditions as well. This motif of the sphere, this became for me um, a, a a real like second Copernican revolution. And then um, I, I tried to find anything else out there that was like it. The first thing I found was the big metaphysical speculative system of Anna Teresa Timonetska, the world the founder of the World Phenomenology Institute and the the journal Analecta Husserliana. So she's a, a real important uh, woman phenomenologist, um, just or just you know one of the great phenomenologists for sure. She was a student of Roman Ingarden, and um, she good, good friends with uh, Pope John Paul II, correct? That's right. Yeah, th there's there is a um, 
a documentary out there about that. Um, but, you know, I, so they were friends. I mean, the Catholic world likes to suspect because of these letters between them that they were more than friends. But I mean, whatever the, the case may be, um, it's it's an interesting, you know, <laughs> a bit of trivia, but it's kind of a distraction from how how amazing her philosophy is. And um, so then I found that Timonetska has this kind of vision as well. She situates her whole system in the great, um, the sphere of the all, or the sphere of the all one. These are terms um, from Plotinus and Iamblichus. So they're, they're Neoplatonic, but you can find them elsewhere as well. Of course, I mean, it's just the sphere, right? And, um, and then finally, shortly after um, I really started getting into Timonetska, I found Conrad Martius. And I found it in many ways, um, Conrad Martius sort of prefigures the kind of uh, spirit of scientific activity that you can also find in Timonetska. Um, Timonetska does cite Conrad Martius um, as well, like, you know, Merleau-Ponty cites her in Phenomenology of Perception briefly. Um, she's, she's cited here and there, but in her day, she was recognized as one of the great philosopher scientists. Could you talk a little bit about who she was and uh, and and kind of where she came from and and how that develops into her work? Yeah, so um, she got a copy of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason at a, at a very young age, um, so that messed her up. Um, <laughs> so as, she, as it does even people who get it at a later age. So so then she went into school and um, she had the privilege of attending a uh, a girls' school, which was a sort of new thing, the, the women's movement um, had been going on um, a, a little while in Berlin. Um, so she she was part of this. There were still big problems. Um, this, this was also a problem for Edith Stein. Um, she faced the issue of the girls' school didn't like teach Greek because Greek was just being taught to boys. And so when it came time for her to like dissertate, um, Göttingen was like, sorry, you don't have Greek, but that's because she was, you know, they didn't give it to her. She had to like take, um, do regular school and then go to this school for girls and, and do um, all these exams and extra school after that. So, so anyway, she, she worked really hard um, because she, she was, she was impassioned with not only like Kant, but she said with the study of Spinoza, um, lightning struck her. And then when she got into Husserl, um, lightning struck a second time, you know, in the same spot. <laughs> And so, so she, this, she went to Munich and um, uh, Geiger sent her to, to Husserl in, in like 1910 was when she started studying under Husserl. Um, she got into phenomenology shortly um, before that in Munich. And she was a part of this early um, phenomenological activity in Göttingen and um, also, that there's a big schism, a break in phenomenology when Ideas One came out. Um, Husserl started like more explicitly, you know, going towards transcendental idealism um, when he was absorbed in Kant, and there was a big split between his his students um, with with Husserl on on this transcendental idealism side, and then the realists, those under Reinach, uh, people like Scheler, um, uh, Roman Ingarden. And Conrad Martius, at the time, she was like the leader of the students in Göttingen. So she was identified by Husserl as like, you know, the, the leader of these, um, he calls them heretics. Um, you know, it's maybe a strong word, but 
And, and I, I don't think he was like totally against her. He does sort of disown her in certain statements as a student. And in the 19 teens, she starts publishing some really powerful works that come to characterize her whole deal. She creates this new kind of phenomenology that in certain respects uh, continues Husserl's work in a, a direction that he kind of left off. This is the ontology of reality. Um, and he continues it too in different ways, but but he he sort of breaks with this when he goes into that transcendental idealism mode. But um, her real ontological reduction is the opposite of Husserl's transcendental reduction. So I hope to share a bit with you about this as we go. But uh, the point is, you know, um, she sort of represents a sort of a kind of phenomenology that in many respects is the opposite of Husserl, but it's no less rigorous. And it also continues some of the work that Husserl was doing early on. Uh, by the way, in, in 1919, um, she was hanging out at her farm um, in uh, Bad Bergsebern. Um, you know, so she was really close with Edith Stein. They were like best friends, you know, at, at times. And um, but so in 1919, Edith Stein was hanging out there and um, she had her big conversion from the kind of atheism that we all espouse as academics in the world today. You know, she grew up, she grew up in a, a Jewish family, but she was like, you know, academic atheist, you know, um, but she had this big conversion um, to Catholicism. And, and like Conrad Martius isn't a Catholic. She just was reading at the farm um, at the farmhouse, the uh, St. Teresa of the Cross's work. And she, she like, she got into it. Um, and so it was new year's day, uh, 1920 that she decided she needed to like wear white for the ritual of getting baptized at the nearest church and becoming a Catholic. And so she used Conrad Martius's wedding dress because that was the, the whitest garb, you know, and, and maybe also because of the kind of symbolic significance that, that we can appreciate. Um, and then, and so, so this happened at Conrad Martius's house and Conrad Martius became her godmother. They got an exception because she wasn't Catholic, but I just I just think that's such a, a cool little biographical story about her relationship with Edith Stein. And then all of the 1920s, they were hanging out and having this really productive time of creative activity, writing um, plays, one of which survives. But in 1929, she decided to burn all of her creative work. Um, so, so we don't have like a lot that survives from the 1920s, but she was like prolific even despite that. Uh, with her philosophical work. But but so anyway, um, what's really interesting is what happened in like 1919, 1920, and then through the, the 20s. So th there's a little story there, a biographical sort of story. Um, you know, Edith Stein comes on the scene a little bit later um, and did a lot of work for Husserl getting like the, the inner time consciousness lectures all together, for instance. And then, and then, and then Heidegger stole right. credit for it. Seriously, yeah, yeah. And then Heidegger swoops in there. There's, there's all this um, really interesting story about that in the in the preface that Dermot Moran wrote for the Inner Time Consciousness lectures, and in his book on Husserl, he talks about this stuff. Yeah, Heidegger comes in. Uh, a great example of of sexism that is it's probably still the way it happens today, even though there there have been many. Um, you know, tremendous leaps forward. I, I don't know. We'll see <laughs> how that that goes. But um, uh, yeah, Heidegger comes in 
and takes over that work. He's like, he puts his name on it. You know, I mean, that, part of these are, are the, the machinations of, of the university. It was, it was his term to be Pravat docent, you know, or, or whatever it was. And then, um, and, and then, you know, he wants Husserl to endorse being in time. Um, and this becomes a part of it, but it, it really effectively like erases Edith Stein's work, unfortunately. But what, what's really interesting is, um, uh, Dermot Moran brought me um, aside one of these steps and he was like, well, you know what I think? So kind of like under under his breath, he was like, um, you know, Heidegger totally jacked Conrad Martius's whole deal. You know, she was doing ontological phenomenology before him. And if you just look at like Heidegger's um, focus in the Dasein's Lehre of, of being in time, you know, if you look at Conrad Martius, she has a much bigger Zeinslehre overall that she's pulling from German idealism and and doing it in her own way and doing it in a really phenomenological way her phenomenological ontology so I mean it's interesting to think that it's possible that the future of of philosophy is going to be very Conrad Martius she she can like really replace Heidegger perhaps you know in very powerful ways I mean she respected a lot of what Heidegger did she she wrote about him there's there's some literature there to see but um but I mean I think you can see that what she was doing also fits into classical like traditional metaphysics and also like is more intuitive is far more intuitive than Heidegger in in many important respects um yeah did she not put herself forward as a post metaphysician no no she um she certainly begins all of her appropriations of the traditional structures with cr her critiques um, from a sort of like contemporary scientific standpoint. It's just that it's phenomenological scientific standpoint, you know, so it's not immediately like naturalizing phenomenology. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, I'm thinking about as uh, as a young student of philosophy and theology and these sorts of things, the narrative of phenomenology that I got was basically like a couple of tent poles, right? You have Husserl, Husserl leads to Heidegger, Heidegger leads to like French phenomenology, um, and they're all men except for maybe you might throw in Simone de Beauvoir. Um, and yet, I think what you're revealing is that there was actually, you know, there's this earlier split that happens between the sort of Husserlian um, direction and this, this Munich school of, of realist phenomenologists. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what exactly is it about the transcendental turn in ideas one that really frustrates them? Why do they, why do they reject that? What did, what did they see in the early Husserl that they think he's abandoning at that point? Yeah, yeah. There's two um, famous little taglines for phenomenology early on. Um, one of them is from Ideas One, where Husserl says, um, we are the true positivists. And uh, he means this in the sense of he's critiquing the, the positivism, the naturalism and, um, you know, the natural attitude, the tendency to naturalize phenomena. Um, that you find in um, Hume and the Neo-Humeans, Ernst Mach, um, Cornelius, um, there's, there's a number of figures he, he identifies with this, but in critiquing positivism, he also says, we are the true positivists. We are um, true, we go to the things themselves. Um, so there's this other phrase, 
from logical investigations um, to the things themselves. So this, to the things themselves, this became like a battle cry for these early realist phenomenologists. Um, and, and they felt like Husserl's turn to idealism was in a way abandoning that, or at least that's like the naive gloss, you know, maybe, maybe not exactly. It's, it's, of course it's, it's complicated, right? Right. But when you say abandoning that, what is that? Because this, I'm not um, sure that that's a completely clear. Like it's one thing to say, um, and and sort of invoke that sort of Kantian phraseology. I think it would be helpful for for me and maybe for others to just be a little bit more clear about what 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 does that really mean? Yeah. So so early on in um in 1910 or so, um, we we have some translations into English amongst the collected works of the Husserliana. Um, some of the lectures that occurred in that in that time. Um, and, and Husserl is doing this ontology of reality and he kind of drops this project, uh, with ideas one and moves towards this idealism. Um, so that would be more of like a shift from an ontology of reality to like a, a kind of phenomenological study of consciousness. Would right. That be fair. Way yeah. yeah that, thank you. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and also, also therefore a kind of abandoning of ontology in general. I mean, he's also um, making a distinct and very important distinctions for ontology, like the distinction between formal ontology and material ontology. And um, I guess like the, the best way to characterize this split is um, having to do with like the practice of metaphysics on the one hand, as well, like, um, you know, an interest in, in natural science and um, you know that that sort of thing. This this is stuff that Husserl con considers um, material ontology, and there are statements he makes where this material ontology is sort of denigrated, and he wants to do this pure noetics and go into um, the formal ontological stuff that you find in like uh, formal and transcendental logic, and um, you know because because he's trained as a mathematician, he's originally um, doing all of this because of um, you know his his interest in the philosophy of mathematics and it becomes a sort of science of consciousness because he wants to he has he has certain purposes that are um maybe a bit more idealist he wants to go into consciousness and the, the structure of thought you know so this is called noetics i i do want to also emphasize the fact that not all of these realist phenomenologists were um religious or spiritual but conrad martius certainly was Certain of them certainly were, like Edith Stein, Saint Benedicta of the Cross, who became a, a Catholic saint. In fact, a patron, a patron saint of Europe um, in the 90s when Pope John Paul II beatified and, and canonized her. As, as well, like certain other realist phenomenologists, they weren't necessarily like religious like this, but some of them were. So, I mean, the realism, it could be very metaphysical, like an interest in the metaphysics of reality and and the um you know the uh, the metaphysics of the, the trans physical and how it has the the physical situated inside of it you know or or it could be about like um like for roman in garden you know the, the literary work of art it's about um you know fictional entities and stuff like that and and conrad martius does this as well um which we'll see soon in the the metaphysical conversations 
Excellent. So why don't we uh, shift from the biography and let's let's dig into yeah. some of her ideas. So she is famously, I think, you know, a, quite a difficult thinker in a lot of ways, or at least, you know, she is she employs a vocabulary and a way of thinking about phenomenology that if you are a Husserlian or a Heideggerian probably will seem kind of foreign. And if you're not familiar with phenomenology at all, will seem really foreign. Um, and so I wonder if, you know, uh, with with an audience of non-phenomenologists in mind, if you could uh, introduce some of the big ideas that she she draws forward in her work. Yeah, yeah. So um, she has this early work, real ontology, which is the same word that that Husserl is using for the ontology of reality. And this is pretty synonymous with ontological phenomenology for her. Um, you know, ontology and phenomenology definitely go together. You see it in um, more thematic and in certain thinkers. Sartre, for instance, begins, you know, this is a treatise in, in the, the phenomenology of, you know, phenomenological ontology or, or ontological phenomenology or something like that in, in being in nothingness. Um, you know, so, so I mean, th these things don't necessarily indicate something that is <laughs> very clear. I mean, it's like <laughs> really a mouthful, right? Um, but she describes this, um, real ontological reduction. Maybe before we get to her real ontological reduction, yeah. um, we should talk a little bit about the uh, about the idea of a reduction in, in general, right? To oh, sort yeah. of set out that landscape. Yeah. So what what is a phenomenological reduction? This is language that people who've maybe dipped their toe into phenomenology have encountered in various places, but I think it's often sort of misunderstood. So what what would yeah. if somebody was to ask you what is the phenomenological reduction? Now, the phenomenological reduction takes place in two steps. First, there is what is called the epoche. In phenomenology, it refers to the suspension or bracketing or parenthetization of our prior commitments and ideas. By engaging in the epoche, we leave to the side our earlier understanding of things, whether from the realm of metaphysics or physical sciences or whatever. More importantly, we even set to the side what in phenomenology is called the general thesis of the natural attitude which states that the things that we experience are simply there for us, as Husserl says, that they exist and are what they are, utterly independently of our awareness of them. In other words, according to the general thesis of the natural attitude, experience immediately presents us with complete objects whose content and meaning are entirely in them, independently of us. By engaging in the epoche, by suspending these natural, these, uh, natural attitude theses and so on, we are able to move from the natural attitude to the phenomenological or transcendental attitude. By suspending our commitment to even to the general thesis of the natural attitude, our focus is pulled back from the object of consciousness to the whole act of consciousness itself. This whole act of consciousness includes not only the object such as we are aware of it, but also ourselves and all the things we are doing in order to attain to an awareness of that object. So the first step of the phenomenological reduction is, therefore, the epoche. It leads us out of the natural attitude and into the phenomenological attitude. The second step, which is only possible after performing the epoche, is called the reduction proper. In this step, we describe as meticulously and accurately as possible the various aspects and modalities of the relation between ourselves and objects in consciousness. 
Yeah, well, we'll tell you what, if the phenomenologists in the audience will forgive me for a moment, I think I can make it even more simple, more intuitive, if um, we go ahead and accept that maybe in some senses, the reduction is a sort of like meditation, not unlike um, the kind of thing you find in spirituality in general, which, you know, not to not to generalize, you know, I mean, I am, I do like the perennialist position myself, not everyone, right? But um, if you look to like the yoga sutras, um, you know, it's it's about the cessation of the mind stuff, right? So you, you chill out your mind and you just relax, you know, and and empty your mind and and cease all activity. Um, there's an analogy to like the Cartesian um, meditation, which is, you know, a different sort of meditation, but in any case, it's a thought experiment, you know? So it's a thought experiment where you you cease all that activity. And then what's left, you know, in, in like psychedelic studies, you know, it's like ego death, you know, you, um, you get past all the phantasmagoria of all the different, you know, phenomena and, and what's, what's left, you know, you're still there. It's not like nothingness appears or maybe like in a sense, nothingness, but, um, this is an encounter with like the pure subject, whether it's Husserl's transcendental ego or it's like the German idealist, like especially in, in someone like Fichte, um, the the pure I, you know, the, the thetic moment, um, or also what Husserl calls das reine Ich, the pure I, uh, the pure ego. And this became of, of tremendous interest for people like Conrad Martius and Edith Stein. And um, for instance, later on, Gerda Walther, um, whose book, Phenomenologie der Mystik, which I know the, the people listening can't see it, but it's a pretty rad book. It's all about the pure eye. And, and she develops a, um, a mysticism on this idea that there's the pure eye and then the, the, the different types of character, um, you know, personhood, um, you know, are built out of this and, and society and the world. And ultimately it's this system of concentric spheres all centered um, on this, this pure transcendental ego. But if you blow away all those spheres, you know, you're, you're performing a kind of epoche. You're putting in brackets all of the world. And in particular, for Husserl, the transcendental reduction is a bracketing of the positing of the world itself or a bracketing of the world thesis that the world even exists. So if you can, like, get into a state of meditation, like, you know, Asam Prajnata Samadhi or, or whatever tradition, you know, maybe Eastern Orthodox um, uh, what's it called? Hesychasm, you know, um, which also has this like early uh, a Greek, you know, um, philosophical analog in, in just the general practice of like meditation on the unparticipated one, the unparticipated monad, tahen, you know, it's kind of implied in the philosophy there. And, and you see this in the mystery schools and, and hermeticism. Um, so, so all around, there's a kind of like meditation. And I think that um, phenomenology does this reduction in a way that's, that's really powerful with the transcendental reduction. But in any case, you know, generally this phenomenology is all premised on this act of reduction, something you, you ritualistically perform, you know, but it, it's really just another word for like a thought experiment. So for her, the thought experiment is the opposite of this transcendental reduction where you bracket the world. No, for her, you actively engage 
all these things, which are ultimately in, in the real imagination. She calls it the real imagination. And, you know, there are anal analogies here, I think, um, uh, connections to be made with the productive imagination, with the active imagination in like Jungian thought, with um, the imaginal um, in like Corban, yeah. you know, a lot of really um, interesting connections here. But the point is um, that in even in Husserl's phenomenology, um, imaginary variation is concomitant as as like a kind of uh, a device or um, a thought experiment that goes right along with this like really really deep or highest bracketing you know of everything but so for her it's the opposite so the, her real ontological reduction is also called the hypothetical reduction or the heuristic reduction where you posit things and that's why she's able to do metaphysics and even like a real mythology it's called real mythology and you find this in theologians of her time as well something like a real mythology um where you can talk about entities like angels and spirits and even like really really fictitious things like like gnomes you know and sprites or whatever you know because each of them implies some kind of reality maybe not being maybe the difference between reality and being is a fundamental distinction for for thinkers like this you know so so like the status of ideality and virtuality um you know is really made thematic stuff that we do all the time in our imagination when we when we have a, a fantasy component in in perception in experience of the world in society in artificial things like names and ideas of like you know i'm i'm in this room i'm hanging out with you guys like yeah we sort of tacitly grant these i don't know what to call them forms of thought imaginary entities some kind of realism i i don't really have good language around this but i i sometimes i think about this as a sort of like ontology of the imaginal and it, it, it kind of reminds me of um you, you already invoked Jung. I think very much he was working in that space too, right? Like when he's talking about his archetypes, to my understanding, he's not saying you're going to go and find these archetypes somewhere, right? But they're like trans-temporal, semi-stable entities that appear in the imaginal space. Yeah. Yeah. So she she goes all the way. She She pushes these hypothetical entities all the way to a speculative metaphysical system. And so she places things like the prime mover and the the prote hule, the you know the the, the prime matter, and um and and a pure soul as distinct from pure spirit, the first soul, first spirit. She pushes metaphysics into like a systematic expression, whereas like because of um the emphasis on the negative side of like the hermeneutic circle. Um, we haven't like, like philosophy is a caged bird. It's stuck in academia. You know, um, it's not even like the, the original sense of the queen of the sciences. It's like their sister, you know, um, or even like their, their poor, like Cinderella, you know, in, in the academy today, but it, it could be yeah. this real flying, you know, magical bird thing. And, and it should be, um, but with, it's not going to happen until we can like, um, take this method up of of real ontology and universal ontology. The, the goal of the real ontology is this thing she calls universal ontology. So that's when she like makes this diagram. She starts spelling out her big speculative schema, which she had developed pieces of throughout her career and has always kind of employed a sort of um, intuitive understanding of how this works, how it is a philosophical cosmology that is at the same time universal ontology. 
so th- what strikes me is really interesting about this, right, is that in Husserl, you have this notion of the eidetic reduction. Um, and the eidetic reduction, you can kind of bracket reality, you know, like we were talking about, you can bracket reality in order to, um, to get at essences. And one of the ways you do that is through imagination, right? Which is, you know, a word you were just bringing up, right? And so for him, because you're bracketing the question of whether it's real or not, you can explore meanings by imaginatively varying, right? So you want to figure out what does it mean to be a table? Well, you can imagine a table and then have it have one leg and five legs and a thousand legs and whatever. It can be brown, it can be blue, it can it can be metal, it can be whatever. And you can go through all of these imaginations, but you could also be like, you know, um, it also, you know, has, you know, hair and you ride it around if you're a cowboy and you're like, wait, no, no, that's a horse, right? And so yeah. you can find these, these limits of meaning by exploring. And what strikes me as really interesting about her work is she's sort of doing the same thing as that imaginative variation, except she's not making that initial assumption that you can only play in the imaginative realm if you assume, if you bracket the question of reality. She's sort of, she's playing imaginatively but in reality, so it's like, it almost, it, it, it feels like a um, a philosophy, like a magical realism philosophy in right. some ways. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great connection as well, um, magical realism. Yeah, yeah, these are, these are terribly interesting and pertinent, timely connections that need to be drawn as well, like the connections um, to like Edith Schein and, and, and Heidegger. Um, you can find a much richer kind of thing that you find in Heidegger in Conrad Martius. And, in my humble opinion. You know, it strikes me that um, th- this, it, it is, I think it's telling, right, that her work is being rediscovered, I, I think, in a, in a significant way right now, right? Because we're at a time where conversations around things like new materialism uh, are really big. There was there was the period where you had, you know, object-oriented oriented ontology and things like that were emerging. And it really seems like, you know, in the period sense of around the 90s, there's been a real turn for how do we get back to really doing ontology? You know, everybody's reading Deleuze and all of this. And it's and it seems like it's a sense of, of people wanting to get back to reality and get out of our own heads in some way. And I think it's sort of telling that, you know, she's being rediscovered and she was part of this Munich school that, you know, back in 1913 was already critiquing the, the sort of inward turn into your own head. It's like, no, we need to stay in the world. We need to do ontology of the world. And so, yeah, and I'm picking up resonances to those more contemporary schools of thought that you mentioned, new materialism and, and so on. Like there's a lot of ambiguity and there's there's a difficulty in trying to really pin down what that means. There's a sort of slipperiness. And I think that's intentional when you talk about the sort of differences in ontology. There's like this range of things that that means, that range, that zone of ambiguity points to the difficulty with this character that you're speaking of now, as it does with more contemporary versions of this. Yeah, actually, this is a really terrific topic because, um, you know, it's come up before how um, these early realist phenomenologists should be um, approached now, especially that we have like all this new materialism, speculative realism, object-oriented ontology, you know, um, yeah, so so I was originally doing my master's thesis on this topic, you know, all these all these new materialist um, thinkers, and and then I switched to like basically like what I'm talking about, like Conrad Martius and and Peter Manchester and and Tim Anietzka, this this phenomenology under the rubric of of the sphere. Um, my my master's thesis ended up 
being titled The Phenomenology of the Spheres. And, and by the way, my dissertation, which I'm, I'm currently engaged with, is called um, Universal Ontology of the Infinite Sphere. And it's very much about Conrad Martius and, and George Spencer Brown, in fact. Um, I recently emailed Ian Hamilton Grant about something when I, when I got really excited about, about this topic, because I, I really started to engage it um, in uh, July, I, I got his, his books um, and I, I realized this is totally Conrad Martius. Um, I, I realized his, his work very much focuses on shelling and uh, realism, materialism in, in a Schellingian sort of way. Um, it, you know, involving metaphysics, a German idealist metaphysics, but German idealism, you know, means different things. And so there, there is an analog to the kind of the specifically the kind of realism of Conrad Martius, um, not only in Schelling, but in the figure immediately preceding Schelling around around the same time, who was a big influence on Schelling and on Hegel. And that's uh, Franz Xavier von Bader or Bader, Bader, B-A-A-D. I can't believe it's not Bader. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Yeah, I, it, it's a sick name. Um, there, there's a little bit of literature out there on him. Uh, you'd be into this, uh, I think, neo-Calvinism and Christian theosophy, Franz Xavier von Bader, and, and then a couple um, Dutch guys whose names I can't, can't pronounce. But her work is, is very similar to, to their work. It has a lot to do with this um, neo-Platonic motif of um, the protos and epistrophe, the emanation and return that you find um, so thematic in Proclus's work. But in Ian Hamilton Grant's book, which one is it? Um, on on Schelling and, and new materialism. Um, in the beginning of, of this book, he highlights Plotinus's Ennead six six six. There's a, a phrase in there that the, the subject of this particular Ennead is the Ousion Catholon ton Idon, the universal substance of the ideas. And at six 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 six, he talks about the Energeia. Antos energeia, and this reduplicative positing becomes thematic. And um, in Conrad Martius's work, she talks about verklika um, verklikeit, or the the real reality. And this this is basically the same term. And what's interesting with with the Plotinus connection is that Plotinus is going into the materiality of of the idea of of matter, you know, and um, an actual actuality at 666.36, another <laughs> numerologically in interesting uh, point in there. Um, but so so Hamilton, uh, in Hamilton Grant calls this the ontology of power. This is totally what Conrad Martius's stuff is. Um, I wasn't sure if he was familiar with it. So we, we did a little email exchange and, and he's super stoked. Um, and this is exciting because I think he's in the New York area. So we'll we'll have to work on this some more. But I mean, there, there's other like connections between these early realist phenomenologists and other species of new materialism, but this like, um, like, like Schelling, Schellingian sort of um, metaphysical realism, you know, I think is, is, um, is most similar to Conrad Martius's work. This is, this really isn't my wheelhouse. So it's, it's hard for me to, infer what the uh, implications for this sort of thing might be if we accept this phenomenological approach for that what's what's the upshot either religiously or or politically or artistically and yeah yeah so i mean there there's um 
definitely a philosophical benefit um, because instead of um, rejecting either modernity, like a lot of like religious uh, spiritual philosophers, um, or rejecting um, pre-modernity, like all the moderns, <laughs> contemporary um, thinkers, she rather embraces it all. And she's doing um, cutting edge scientific work in, in a variety of sciences, biology, um, physics. She has an ontological interpretation of Heisenberg's quantum theory very early in the 1950s, and also um, an ontological interpretation of Einstein's relativity theory on the same grounds, in the same terms as her Platinian, Aristotelian, um, doctrine of entelechy, which is really the, the operative mechanism in her ontology of reality, is the is a very Aristotelian um, entelechy. Just like you know, all all the the people who use this stuff, including um, theosophists, she engages uh, with with theosophy in a number of works. She talks about how she kind of presents a sort of version of theosophy of her own, and and by that I mean. Um, Maybe maybe more akin to um, Steiner's anthroposophy, you know, but but maybe even closer to um, von Bader's um, early Christian theosophy, pre-Blavatsky, you know. But but um, so that there's there's this stuff, um, but also I feel like philosophy itself, whether you identify philosophy per se as a sort of like secularized uh, rational activity or if you um, identify it with the classic things like the Prisca Philosophia or the Philosophia Perennis et Universalis or um, first philosophy in Aristotle's sense, all of these things are very much um, a, you know, fundamental metaphysics. They're about the foundations. They're about connecting um, the metaphysics of reality of the world, of, of you know, the world of human affairs in this, um, this big Maybe it's ontotheological, you know, foundational type of stuff, but that's exactly what she's doing. So, in a sense, she is making philosophy come alive again, you know, in a way where um, the foundations really find a meaningful um, place amongst all these possible um, objective meaning configurations. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we were talking about the sort of reductive method, and it sounds like to a certain extent that's something that is on one hand a starting point, but also a starting point which she subverts for a particular purpose. And then it sort of ties in for me with something, a, fra a phrase that you mentioned earlier, but like, you know, we're the true, uh, there's a language of subversion I hear in this particular pheno uh, phenomenological approach. I don't know if that if that's right or not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've even in this uh, 2020 essay that I wrote in, in Natur und Cosmos, I explained that it's a, um, I would call it like more of an expansion than a reduction because it is a phenomenological reduction that grounds her whole method from the ontology of reality to universal ontology, this big speculative metaphysical scheme. Um, it's an expansion. And and um, just like the Plotinus 666 thing that um, Ian Hamilton Grant uses to characterize this uh, realism that is metaphysical, it's about the essence of existence and the essence of extension and the essence of the real. So in fact, it is about the, the um, an essence, not opposed to existence, but the essence, you know, of existence. So it's a kind of existentialism. In fact, oh, in a weird way, I mean, this is sort of a stretch, not really though. I mean, 
it's definitely um, something really interesting to look at. And so where I look at it in my work um, is at a kind of like theory of extension and dimensionality that can be drawn from her doctrine of, of the spheres and of these constitutive, um, we didn't even mention like her overall motif for metaphysics is this constitutive activity, what she calls the founding ontological dynamism, the movement from non-being into being or from being into non-being, or perhaps what it really is, is like God pouring God into God, you know, or like the, the nothingness that is fullness um, or like a cup of water in the midst of the ocean. Yeah. You know, this act of just drawing a distinction in an otherwise unmarked state um, or the, the or dynamic, the primordial dynamic, this is at the center of it all for her because this is creation, um, but it's a it's an everywhere creation. Um, to use Jean Gebser's title, it is um, this the ever present origin. You know, so this movement um, that is ontologically constitutive of all things is um, manifests itself in a in a twofold, in a, a primordial twofold kind of way as a a radiation in all directions, which she calls um, mm. ecstasis you know, very Heideggerian, right? Um, the ecstasis of, of being and also the return motion, a sinking dynamism, um, which she calls infrastasis or instasy, instasis. You know, so, I mean, these motions of explosion and return back to the center are, are what is the, the fundamental dynamic. And so for her, that's, that's really the material ontological or universal ontological analog to this formal ontological entity called the first distinction. I think that this whole paradigm is totally intuitive. In fact, in a very deep way, it's been like the most fundamental intuitive notion of all of speculative metaphysics to, to say something very broad, sweeping and destructive. And destructive. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know if this is kind of what you're pointing towards, but the question, the question is, how do you get from zero to one? <laughs> no. Like Leibniz has this emblem of like a zero with a with a one superimposed. That's the Greek letter phi, right? That becomes his like personal stamp, his signature on on his letters. You know, so that was a very important um, relationship for him. Uh, Nicholas of Cusa is all about um, this relationship between like the zero and the one, or the nature of the the one um, times one equals one. The um, the the first square, the tetragonus primus as Christ, and, and of course the logos um, as the prima ratio all along, that's, that's what these things are about. So there is like a, a mathematical kind of component, a mathesis universalis, Pythagorean sort of component to all this. And, and Conrad Martius does the, the like ontological uh, yeah. material side. It sort of corresponds to me seemingly to, to invoke a more theological notion of a uh you know, an ex nihilo. And so I think he, I think it's helpful to think about it in these different registers. And I feel like for me personally, I can affirm one without having to affirm another. Yeah. I mean, th there's like um, these academic discussions about creationism versus emanationism. But I mean, from my position, kind of outside of those discussions, I really see a, a you know, a strong, you know, they're, they're kind of the same thing in a way. And that's how it is for Conrad Martius, this kind of image of creation from nothing as the all encompassing emanation and return movement. Yeah, it's interesting because it, right, because it's there's there's one model that says there's creation from nothing. There's another model that says it's emanation, you know, from God or from the one or whatever you want to call it. And yet if you make the argument that God or the one or whatever you want to call it is the nothing, right? The nothing that is all, um, then 
in a certain sense, the distinction between those two begins to really dissolve in a, in a pretty significant way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, that's what I'm all about. And so what I, what I find really fascinating here is the way in which it feels like she's, she rediscovered in, you know, in the early 20th century, a way of doing philosophy and mysticism and esotericism and mathematics, doing those all at the same time in a way that would have been completely normal for the, the, um, uh, the Pythagoreans or the Neoplatonists, or even as you pointed out, somebody like Nicholas of Cusa. Yeah, you know, as you have this process of of the creation of the disciplines that you get in the 17th and 18th century, you know, these all get sort of cordoned off. And so, you know, the religious people can go in their religious studies department and the philosophers go over there and the mathematicians go over there. And in many ways, it seems like she's recapturing this early vision of, of this sort of general science of everything. Is that fair? Oh yeah, I mean, so and and in Husserl, the the science of all the sciences, you know, um, is the 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 doctrine doctrine of science, the theory of science, and um, for him, it's synonymous with the theory of theory forms or possible, you know, theory forms, forms that theories can take. I mean, this is like a little wild, a little like esoteric itself. Um, and one would have to like become a phenomenologist and refer to logical investigations and formal and transcendental logic. Um, but but what this is is he also identifies it with a theory of of manifolds, manifoldkeits lara, and and so the way I see it is that there's a, a very intuitive notion at the foundation, and that animates all of of the understanding of possible sciences, possible logics, um, and that's this relation between the one and the many that um, boils down to not a um, not a a dualism, but a resolution of dualism in perhaps a dynamic and, and not a, not a monism, but like a, like a demonistic, <laughs> demonistic um, action at the very foundation, you know, and it has to like all cohere in a very deep economy, the dankest dank economy to use Husserl's um, appropriation of Marx's dank economy, economy of thought, you know, and, and this foundation, the laws of thought, this is this is Bull. This is Spencer Brown. This is Spencer Brown almost called laws of form, laws of thought, um, and this is what Conrad Martius is tapping into. Awesome. So, if uh, as we kind of I think begin to draw things to a close because we're we're approaching an hour now, um, it for you know as you noted, a lot of her stuff is not translated into English. So if uh, for our English language audience primarily, um, where would you direct them to if they want to learn more about uh, Conrad Martius's work? Yeah, so um, so I've been actually putting a lot of stuff online um, in in the YouTube world and and on social media and stuff. But um, in yeah, I, I will say that prepping for this, I, I put uh, you know Conrad Martius in YouTube, and I think of the first like. 15 things you're in about 12 of them <laughs> yeah that's because i'm the the moderator um for our sessions the the um, society for the phenomenology of religious experience sophia um i'm the director of the webinar and we had the privilege of professor jim hart one of the translators of husserl's works um and who who in his early dissertation um wrote about conrad martius um we did a reading group on his book that just came out republished in um uh, 2020 called Hedvig Conrad Martius's Ontological Phenomenology and uh, Rodney Parker is the editor and I met him through the the North American Society for Early Phenomenology and um and got to study with him at the Paderborn Center for the, the History of Women Philosophers and Scientists 
where Conrad Martius is a key figure. So that's an important work that came out in 2020. And then in 2021, Ronnie Miron, who I met in Paderborn as uh, one of the, also one of the teachers who taught Conrad Martius, um, she has the book, Hedwig Conrad Martius, The Phenomenological Gateway to Reality. So these two books, um, you know, they're, they're like a little different, um, but I mean, they're, they're big, they're in English, and they do contain little selections, translations of some of her work, but also like in Edith Stein's um, two big metaphysical books, um, A Finite and Eternal Being and um, Act and Potency, she translates little bits from Conrad Martius all over the place because they were, they were really tight. And, you know, metaphysically, they were really close together. So, I mean, those, those are some great sources, these, these recent books. And then, of course, um, Karina Gershwantner just came out with, with her book, the, the Metaphysical Conversations. And I believe there's going to be an appendix where certain important um, essays by Conrad Martius were translated. There are also a couple essays by Conrad Martius that are translated already, um, and you can find those on the Open Commons of Phenomenology. Awesome. Well, uh, Randy, it has been an absolute pleasure to uh, get to speak to you. We've um, been dibbled. <laughs> we've been fully dibbled. Um, so we, uh, this has been wonderful, and I look forward. We mentioned a few times in passing G. Spetzer Brown, uh, and so we are going to have you back on in a few weeks uh, to talk about uh, the work of G. Spencer Brown, particularly his laws of forms, as, as you're holding up on camera right now. Um, so I look forward to that, that conversation uh, as we turn uh, maybe from the material world into the logical world. We'll see. Um, but this, is, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to meet you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Randy. Thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end. Um, we'll see you next time.